Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Also, don't forget to check out my interview with Jackie Feek about the history of Ptolemy's research into mathematics and astronomy in the 2nd century AD, found at technologyandspace.com, and my discussion with Brian Herskowitz about character development in writing a screenplay. That can be found at fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with John P. Langelier, author of Scouting with the Buffalo Soldiers, Lieutenant Powhatan Clark, Frederick Remington, and the 10th U.S. Cavalry in the Southwest, published by University of North Texas Press, November 19, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. It's a pleasure, and thank you for getting my name right. I was 12 until I could spell it. <laughs> cool. Um, well, I'm excited about this interview because I love the Old West, the history of the Old West, and I don't get to do a lot of interviews for this podcast on the Old West, so um, thank you for writing this book. I'll start with that. <laughs> How did you get into studying and writing on this subject? Actually, that's the perfect opening question. I may not be fast, but I'm thorough. Uh This started uh, approximately uh, 50 years ago when I met the son of the post-surgeon at Fort Grant, who was literally the next-door neighbor kid Mm -hmm. to Lieutenant Clark. And I had never heard of Clark. I had never heard of most of these things when I interviewed him, and... uh, but I did hear of a fellow by the name of Frederick Remington, and Remington mm-hmm. actually was Clark's house guest, and this young lad who that by that time was now an 80-some-year-old gentleman mm-hmm. had actually met, met Remington, arguably one of the most famous of the Western artists uh, of his time and even of today. So mm-hmm. that started the, the thread that took me about a half century to knit into some form of sweater, i.e. this book. Mm-hmm. But you have written a number of um, military histories uh, focused on the Old West, right? That is correct. A lot of them are very technical works about what kind of uniforms the soldiers wore or that sort of thing. This is essentially the only biography except one on a black chaplain that I co-wrote with a colleague of mine from the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. And so getting into the head of somebody who was a, a human being who was no longer living and trying to figure out where he was coming from and why he was doing things uh, is not the easiest thing I've ever tackled. But it's, to date, it's the most rewarding book I've, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be able to have published. So do you, um, do you, does the book start with, because I see he was a member of the U.S. Military Academy class of 1884, do you go far back, you know, into his biography or just stick to his um, time in the Old West? Actually, because the research led me to his letters to his parents and and other personal things that uh, were around probably a lot longer than our tweets and our emails are going to be, Mm -hmm. I was able to go back to his childhood and indeed back to his family background of his father, who was a graduate of Johns Hopkins, a doctor, and uh, his mother, who was a Southern Belle whose father came from Ireland and was very successful, and they were some of the old families of, uh, of, of New Orleans area and actually had a plantation. His dad became a Confederate officer and was actually captured by the Union and prior to the war was one of the first professors and the school doctor for the school that we now know of as 
LSU and the president of LSU at that time, which they called the superintendents of these schools, was none other than William T. Sherman, who was on obviously the other side of the war uh, between the states mm-hmm. from from uh, Clark's father, who also had the same same first name, that it was a family tradition. So mm-hmm. I do go in, into a bit of his background and, and actually the formative years that we see that he wasn't the best student on the planet. He was kind of like the, some of the guys we would have known in our college days that would maybe cram for the test the night before, but didn't bother to crack the books in between examinations. And so as a result, he was the bottom of his class, or as they used to call them at West Point, the last final graduate. He was the goat of his class, just as another cavalry officer prior to his time at West Point had been a fellow by the name of George Custer. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I saw somewhere, maybe in your book, yeah, in the blurb, that uh, he had a lot of charm and bravado. So tell me about that a little bit. Yes, well, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if you and, and your listeners are familiar with an old wonderful Jimmy Stewart movie called Harvey. And, and then the, the character, uh, Elwood P. Dobbs, says you either have to be oh so smart, oh, oh so charming. <laughs> well, uh, Clark might have been fairly smart, but he didn't want to destroy any brain cells by overusing them. But he was charming, and he managed to to get his way through um, school and many other situations by his charm. His voice charmed kind of an old-school Southern gentleman, and uh, that was all well and good. But in reality, when the the boots were on the ground, as the military said, he was a fine combat officer, a fine junior leader uh, at the troop level. Uh, he took care of his men, and they knew it, uh, which is the first thing they, they teach you in, in uh, your leadership courses. You take care of the, 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 the troops first, and everything else should follow. And so to the degree that he even rescues one of his soldiers under fire, and that's the incident that will bring him recognition and the Medal of Honor mm-hmm. eventually. Uh, so he was, uh, as I've said to others, He's the kind of guy I would follow into combat any day, but I wouldn't want him to meet my daughter. <laughs> um, so was he, did he choose cavalry while he was in the academy, or is that something that came after he graduated? Well, here's what happens. He loved, he was a horseman all his life. Even as a, as a kid, he, he, uh, he couldn't bear the thought that his father might sell his beloved horse. He, he he was possibly the finest writer in the U.S. Army of his, of his era, um, but cavalry chose him. The, how it worked in the West Point at the time is more or less the top one or two graduates went into the Engineer Corps, and then after that they went into the artillery, such as certain branches that supposedly had prestige. And the guys who were at the bottom of the class ended up going into the infantry, uh, at the very at the very end of the class, with some exceptions, and that was they could go into cavalry regiments if they were at the bottom of his class, just as Clark and his his really good friend, uh, uh, who was was an officer, the second to the bottom of the class with him, uh, James Hughes. They both went into the cavalry, but they went into the tenth cavalry. This uh, the idea of the time was there was discrimination, and the bottom of your class. You didn't really want to serve with the black unit. Many people were uh, racially motivated and and racist, and so you had no choice. They picked the 10th Cavalry for him Mm -hmm. because he had no other choices. He had the the last uh, 
chip in the bottom of, of, of you know, the, the, the drawing. He, he won the booby prize in, in the minds of many of his fellow cadets. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, even though he was Southern-born, his grandfather had owned a plantation and had been a slave owner, ultimately he will state in more than one case that he would prefer to serve with black troops because they were professional soldiers and some of the finest finest fighting men, fellow fighting men in many respects, that he could uh, serve with, and he would not really want to you know, change to another unit. He had a lot of pride in the soldiers and a great deal of pride in the 10th Cavalry, which was one of the so-called Buffalo Soldier units. Mm-hmm. So I also noticed that he served with uh, the Apache Scouts, or at least I saw a bio. Is that accurate? Yes, no, that's absolutely true. In, in, in some respects, and this is a little bit of an anachronism, and it's, it's, uh, I can't say 100% this is the case, but he is kind of a forerunner of a, a Delta Force or Special Forces type in that he handpicks certain of his black soldiers and handpicks Indian scouts and puts them together as this strike force rather than the thing in the Hollywood movies where everybody's out and horses with satyrs and guidons in the breeze and all that sort of nonsense and which really did not do much good if they had fought the war that way because Apaches were the guerrilla fighters, premier guerrilla fighters who ran and 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 blended back into the into the local uh, environment. So mm-hmm. he early on knew that mixing these two types of, of fighting people, Apaches who knew the territory and who knew literally the people they were or, or their enemy, because sometimes they were even related to them, versus his soldiers, many of whom had been in by the time they come to Arizona in the mid-1860s from, from being in Texas for a, a long period of time, mm-hmm. were seasoned soldiers with many, many, many years of, of experience uh, and and were very dependable. So uh, he did indeed weave together these two in a very unconventional warfare type of organization and was fairly successful at it. And lessons learned today we could probably get from what he did as we are overseas doing things in, in countries that aren't that much different than the local people thinking mm-hmm. much along the lines of the Apaches was, why are we having to deal with these people? This is our land. <laughs> why are they coming and invading us? So mm-hmm. uh, he, he had an appreciation for the scouts uh, and he had an appreciation for his, his best of his, the best of the soldiers and melded them together into a, a really good fighting force uh, long before there was any doctrine in the military because everybody in the military at West Point and elsewhere had been essentially trained. You fought the war as you fought the Civil War or coming wars after that, the Franco-Prussian War and things, with a conventional enemy. And so there was no real uh, policy and procedure in place for unconventional warfare at that time. So you kind of had it invented as you went along, and indeed that's what he did. So mm. from the standpoint of him not being the greatest in book learning, it was one thing, but when he, from the standpoint of learning lessons uh, in the hard way, the school of, of, of experience, uh, he was very good at that. I'm speaking with John Langelier, author of Scouting with the Buffalo Soldiers. You can find more information about the book at University of North Texas Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. 
You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So I'm kind of, and maybe this is outside of the scope of this particular book, but I'm interested in, I I never heard of um, Buffalo soldiers paired up with, you know, Indian scouts in this way. Um, That, that, you know, that the dynamics of that seem very interesting to look into. Um, Absolutely. And it was almost unique um, in the sense that, there were Indian scout groups led by army officers like Charles Gatewood and, and uh, Emmett Crawford and others, but they would be autonomous units with a white officer or a white officer and a white uh, chief of scouts, somebody like an Al Sieber or that sort of thing, uh, who would go out with the troops. But these these units would operate independently from the cavalry units or the, the uh, infantry units in the field. So combining them was not typical uh this was uh this was something that was george crook who had been the commanding general twice in arizona during the apache uh campaigns uh was a big proponent of the use of scouts but he usually once again assigned uh some of the best and the brightest in terms of what he thought of as fighting and not necessarily the best academically mm-hmm. to to uh, serve as in the field commanding these troops so that combination well was not unique but very rare and indeed, uh, I was blessed because part of this book uh, was uh, research was conducted while I was a visiting fellow at the Buffaloville Center of the West. Uh, while there, the staff brought out a photograph of Clark and several of his fellow young officers. They looked like a bunch of frat boys. They're so <laughs> young. And some of the Indian scouts in it, like it was my aha moment. Wait a minute. This is this photograph you rarely ever see. And, and recently, another photograph was was sold at a large auction house, uh, internationally known auction house, mm-hmm. showing several of Scar- uh, scouts and men together in this little kind of Delta Force type of unit. And it was uh, was very, very much an eye-opener. So you caught something that I probably should have emphasized more in the book. And let's pray that the book sells well enough so we go into a second edition, but <laughs> I won't hold my breath as mostly my books are remaindered before they come out of the warehouse. So there you have it. Hmm. Well, let me, um, let me ask about, um, cause I saw again in his bio that, um, I guess he had, uh, he was in the field for a period of time and then he went to Germany for a short while as an observer and then came back into the, um, into the cavalry. I'm curious ha- about his, um, you know, being stationed, what fort he was at, and um, like his day-to-day activities. Right. Well, that's the, kind of the beauty of his letters. His letters were written home mainly to his parents. He was a pretty good son. I mean, mm-hmm. not that you know all parents get gray hairs from their children, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and such. But and he was a pretty good son about keeping his folks. Uh, informed about his daily life and so we have minutia what was he reading what was he spending his money on who were his friends who are the ladies that he that caught his eye although he's very discreet about that usually you don't <laughs> mention names because a victorian gentleman didn't tell hmm. and so his day-to-day life from the time he left the academy particularly to when he went to fort davis as his first posting uh with the 10th cavalry as a junior uh, second lieutenant where he meets Quanah Parker and, and, uh, 
uh, Gerson, uh, Benjamin Gerson, who's the commanding colonel of the regiment, and others, uh, we learned a super amount of the fact that it was boring. There was a lot of paperwork. The, he, amongst others, was always happy, if you will, to go out and, and be in the field to break up the monotony, the routine of the, of the fort where he was, had to serve on court martial boards as a, as, you know, either defending a, a, a person who's been brought up on charges or serving as judge advocate, which would be the person who was essentially the prosecutor and, mm. and such. And so even his papers, uh, have some of his papers have survived. Most of, of which are in St. Louis, where he, uh, his his widow resided after uh, Clark's untimely death. Um, even show notes from court martial. So this guy was uh, a, a, a cognizant of keeping a lot of his life, including pocket journals, there for us. And had he lived longer, we would have seen more, you know, more from him, especially say in the Spanish American War, perhaps even in World War One. So. Hmm. We learn about Fort Clark. We will learn about Fort Grant, which he comes to as his headquarters uh, when the, the regiment transfers after its long sojourn in Texas. Um, and so for Fort Grant, Arizona, uh, Fort Thomas that he leaves in and out of him, the, the uh, legendary Fort Apache, where he comes and goes and actually sometimes recruits his scouts uh, from the scouts there, again, trying to handpick the, some of the best of the best. So. His daily life is one of the things that I think was what intrigued me and kind of pushed me to write the book rather than another bugles and banners of going out and heroically, you know, charging the enemy and receiving the Medal of Honor and all that sort of thing, which is wonderful. But this is more of a, a daily social history of a young officer uh, in his prime who pulls no punches because he's not writing for an audience. He's writing for mom and dad and a few select friends, including a fellow who becomes a close associate of his, again, Frederick Remington that I had mentioned. He was kind of amused to Remington, and Remington in turn helped Clark's career. And so going back to what you mentioned about Germany, Clark, they used to have a, have a thing called wire pulling, where wire pulling is using influence. That was the, uh, the, the, the parlance of the day, and so uh, or pulling strings, we would say today. Okay. And Clark was constantly using his family connections with his, his mother was, uh, married into, a or related to a, a very prominent, matter of fact, the first millionaires in, in, um, uh, in uh, Missouri and in, in the St. Louis area were part and parcel of the family. And these people were all interconnected. And he was always trying to get, he was a Francophile and had gone to school as a young man in, in uh, uh, at a Catholic, uh, academy in, in, uh, in France, and his, he was bilingual in theory, oh. although his letters in French were pretty abysmal. <laughs> much they weren't exactly, you know, the the academy level, you know, the academy français. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was a francophile and tried to get his mom and dad through their influence. They lived outside of D.C. to come down and and do some, you know, lobbying with the various you know, senators or whatever, mm -hmm. and never could get to France. But because one of his aunts had, um, through marriage, had married the chief of staff of the then German army that was fairly new, because the Germans prior to that had been, you know, uh, earlier on in the century had been a, a series of duchies and principalities and kingdoms, and but consolidated uh, by the time of the Franco-Prussian War into what we would know of as Germany today. Mm -hmm. And so, through some kind of bad influence of some of his family. 
and that married into the, the highest-ranking German officer under the Kaiser, they secured him a position to go over and spend a year with the German cavalry observing how they did things. He wasn't a, an attaché, you know, at the embassy uh, or consulate in Berlin. He actually was embedded with a, a German military unit at that time. Mm -hmm. And, of course, typical, he spoke not one word of German, but the army sent him there rather than sending him to France, where at least he had a, a, a modicum of the French language. So, you know, things don't change that much in the military. They assign cooks to become clerks and clerks to become captains or whatever. So it's uh, mm -hmm. it was one of those things. But he did he did uh, cut quite a, a, a figure there. Matter of fact, some of the photographs in the book that I used, that I obtained over the years, were taken in Dusseldorf by a German photographer, and the German photographer thought so much of the appearance of this young American officer that he had a life-size, what we would call a standee, in essence, or photograph, put in the window of his photography studio to attract customers. Oh, look, this handsome young man, I can look handsome too if I get to, had to take my photograph. And yeah. so uh, he, he learned a great deal and indeed predicted some of the things that would happen in the First World War, which was, of course, decades and decades away in terms of how the Germans would operate. Mm -hmm. uh, and had he been alive at that time, probably would have been a real asset to the U.S. Army uh, chain of command at the high, higher levels because he kind of understood the German philosophy of, of their military and how they operated um, and, uh, and admired them to a certain degree, but also understood that... Uh, Someday they might be our enemy, which was quite interesting. So, how um, how extensively did he write about the German military? Like enough for another book, or you know? Well, no. Here's the thing. This is you had to, you know, we and I had chatted a bit in advance about you know the, the type of research I had conducted, etc. And so um, he wrote. He was essentially writing for what would have been the CIA of its time. It was the Military Intelligence Division at, at uh, the, the War Department, forerunner to the Department of you know, the Defense Department. Mm -hmm. And he was sending back reports and also in his letters, particularly to his a young lady that he was, uh, was courting by long-distance mail and trying to get to marry him and ultimately somehow succeeded. So that charm <laughs> worked at long distance at least. Uh, although her letters have all been lost or destroyed, so we don't know what her responses were. But he would write home this information to, to Remington, who was intrigued by foreign military, and to his uh, eventual person who would be his wife or his mom and dad. But his official reports cannot be found, mm -hmm. and they may have been destroyed because he got into trouble of speaking openly to the press about the, the superiority, if you will, of how the German military was organized uh, versus the, the the old fossils, if you will, who were running the American army at the same time, and how the changes needed to be made. Well, it's one thing to you know to think that, and to write that in official reports. It's another thing to tell a, a major New York newspaper that, because it kind of gets the people who are generals, who are those old fossils, hmm. a little riled up. So. Mm -hmm. I have had a colleague who is very adept at research at the National Archives was looking for this material before COVID-19 hit and so far have struck out. So all I have is the snippets from his, his correspondence and not his official reports. But reading between the lines, 
Uh, there's probably an article there, but probably not another book. And as a matter of fact, my next book is is a broader study on on the Buffalo Soldiers, uh, the the men and their missions, which will focus more on the enlisted men and less on on the officers. Mm-hmm. I figure I only have a few more books left in me, so I better <laughs> get them done. <laughs> so what? Uh, but he was involved. I think he was involved in some Indian wars during his career. Oh yeah, no, he was. As I say, he was. In combat against the Apaches, uh, they were ambushed. Uh, Troop K, which is, he was the junior lieutenant in Troop K under a Captain Lebo, who was quite an interesting individual Civil War veteran. And during the firefight, one of the corporals was killed and another one was severely wounded. And Clark ran out in the middle of this firefight and grabbed the soldier and brought him back, possibly with the aid of an, an NCO, although it's, not clear, and ultimately Clark will be uh, cited and receive a, uh, a Medal of Honor for that rescue under fire. Mm-hmm. He has his the original letter he himself describing the incident was a piece of, of correspondence that he picked up at the local railroad station because they were down in Sonora, Mexico, mm-hmm. and uh, you know this piece of almost tissue paper kind of stuff he jotted you know a couple of pages to his mom saying how. He could hear the bullets whizzing by him and everything. What every mother wants to hear, that her son was almost killed, you know. Uh, sometimes he was not too well filtered, but that's another story. But he, he indeed participated for several uh, years on and off, not only in the campaigns uh, that involved Geronimo, but after Geronimo's uh, finally coming in and going back to, to Florida as a prisoner of war, he was on the trail of uh, two so-called renegades, they would have been called in those days. Today, we might look at them as different, but the one uh, fellow by the name of the Apache Kid, who was an, a former Apache scout himself and had had uh, had deserted and you know, gone rogue, and another fellow who, by the name of Masai, uh, who, if you watch old movies, Burt Lancaster, perfectly cast, of course, with his blue eyes, is in a, a tall Apache. Um, uh, he, his fellow by the name of Masai was also being trailed by Clark and, and indeed many others in the U.S. Army at the time. He, too, was someone who had gone gone south and would on and off uh, come into this country out of Mexico, make a raid, steal a woman, steal horses, uh, and, of course, that became almost this legendary situation that if you wanted to blame something that happened on your ranch or what have you, you decided to shoot me. Well, Masai or the Apache kid in his band came in and they killed John. I was terrible. I fought as hard as I could. Well, half the time these stories were just that stories and other times they weren't. And we don't really real know what happened, for instance, to, to the Apache kid. He, even a fellow, um, some folks had, you know, tried to trail him and in, including Tom Horn supposedly uh, was somebody that they were thinking about engaging to try and capture the kid, but the kid was never brought to bay. But but Clark spent a great deal of time in the field, and uh, indeed under fire, uh, they captured some of the uh, Apache kids' group, and uh, they were up in a kind of a small cave area in the rocks, and the scouts and Clark's small detachment of Buffalo soldiers, and he and one other officer, uh, James Watson, went in for uh, this to get through and run these fellows out, and he jumped into the way, and luckily the aim of the Apache was not good. It went right between <laughs> Clark's legs before they they captured these guys, but Clark could have been killed a second time. So he indeed was a real combat soldier who, who um, 
almost seemed fearless, and yet some of his letters home indicate that he was scared. He was no fool, but, you know, mm-hmm. you have to do what you have to do when you're with your soldiers uh, in the field in a combat situation. So he was not just somebody full of bravado. Mm-hmm. He uh, he was heroic, but not, not stupid about uh, what could have happened to him during these uh, uh, you know, during these, these firefights and, and such. So being, being the child of, you know, of privilege of having rich parents, did he have any equipment or did he equip any of his people maybe with a little extra? Um, actually his folks, his father was a doctor in the day and a professor in the day that that didn't bring a lot of money. Hmm. And mom was a stay at home mom because that was the tradition of the Victorian era. So they didn't have a great deal of funds. You know, the, 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 uh, plantation was no longer, et cetera, you know, in the post-Civil War era. So he was constantly complaining, just like, you know, anybody who goes away from home and college and to college and then whatever, that he never had enough money. Well, partly because he kept buying horses and, and you know, greyhounds for hunting dogs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So he, he didn't have anything really particular for his men, although he, always fought to try and get good horses for his men because the horses that the army might ship out from, you know, someplace in a remount depot in, in the Midwest or whatever were fine, maybe, you know, thoroughbreds or, or such, but they weren't great for, you know, the long-term stamina that you needed on campaigning. And his, several of his soldiers would be dismounted and couldn't go into action because their horses had given out. Hmm. So he tried to get good horses for them, and in one case, I do know that they were here in Tucson, where I now live, and um, the soldiers had come in off the trail. They had been out on campaign. They had no money. They hadn't been paid, and he gave them money to go downtown and get some beers and something to eat and some things just to, you know, because he knew his soldiers needed that. Now, did they ever pay him back? Eh, maybe, maybe not, but even, hmm. even the, I don't think he was concerned whether he'd see those silver dollars ever come back or not. Mm-hmm. But he didn't really have enough wherewithal to do much more than equip himself. And he did buy some things. If you see the Frederick Remington uh, images uh, and photographs that Remington based, uh, or a photograph that Remington based one of the, or two of the things on, he's got a civilian gun rig on, and he's got, you know, leather reinforcing in his trousers, and he's he's got these uh, fringed gauntlets that looks like he's in a Wild West show with horseshoes mm-hmm. embroidered on himself. So, you know, he kind of, you know, decked himself out for campaign a little bit as, as the frontier type of, of, of soldier, but, uh, in terms of having the wherewithal to do much for his men, he mm-hmm. didn't. And actually, one other time, the army would allow an officer to have a, a soldier who was nicknamed the striker. He'd go out and strike your tent for you and what have you, mm-hmm. that you could pay for extra duty and things. And his striker became ill and couldn't work, but Clark insisted on giving him his extra duty pay out of his own pocket because that's the way it worked while while uh, Turner was was uh, uh, not available because of, of health issues. So he was a pretty upright guy. About and, that, and another time he wrote his father saying one of the members of his troop was uh, an excellent leather worker and saddle maker and such, and that if his dad ever found anything work for this gentleman, the fellow was thinking about getting out of the army, and he would appreciate it if Dad could help out because this was a a man that he wanted to help take care of after he left uh, left uh, his duty as a soldier. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty pretty stalwart stuff to take care of again the soldiers, but financially he wasn't really able to do very much for them because as a second lieutenant, 
he wasn't uh, bringing in a great deal of money, and even when he got his promotion to first lieutenant, if it hadn't been that he had married a wealthy, uh, you know, person's uh, daughter, mm -hmm. uh, things would have been continued to be, you know, kind of financially tough for him. Mm -hmm. And these were, and just to remind that, that these were black soldiers that he was um, helping out. That's right. right? Again, so. they're almost in all but three cases. The uh, so-called Buffalo Soldier Regiments, the 9th and 10th Cavalry, and after the uh, after 1869, the 24th and 25th Infantry were all black enlisted men commanded uh, by by uh, officers, many of whom had been Civil War officers mm. who were white. So these are all black soldiers, some of whom had been come out of the you know the South and had been uh, from families who had been enslaved uh, and. Uh, some were out of recruited out of places like St. Louis or the big cities in New York. But uh, by by 1885, 86, when they were coming to Arizona, many of them had spent 20 years in uniform, and they were professional soldiers. They looked at uh, their career in the military as just as that versus a lot of the white soldiers who came from from the inner city where they you know were, were had difficult time enjoying because they were looking for some sort of work or. European immigrants who'd come from Ireland or Germany or whatever and, and had no way of getting any kind of job, so they went into the military for five years or whatever. These guys looked at it as a profession of arms rather than a job of work, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Clark admired them, because they, they had the same thought process, that being a soldier was an honorable profession, but it was a profession and that you had to work, work at it, and... Uh, so he, he admired that, and yes, they were all all black soldiers that he dealt with. So the only others that he would deal with were his fellow white officers, uh, who you know would be involved in the field either as his his subordinates or as his his equals, or in some cases as his, his superior ranking mm -hmm. officer. I'm speaking with John Langelier, author of Scouting with the Buffalo Soldiers. You can find more information about the book at University of North Texas Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So did, um, with his, um, his, um, high level of horsemanship, did he, at, at least within his group, did he, um, change any way as far as like how they treated their horses, how they used them, how they rode them, anything like that? Very, very good question. Yeah, a couple of things that go to mind. He was a stickler on drill. These guys get these guys out and they, you know, make them proficient. And one would assume that at the very same time, you also got across to them the importance of their horse, you know, just as the importance of their firearms were. And I'm sure that he had a longtime first sergeant by the name of Gibbons, who indeed was the one who had told the story of the rescue to Frederick Remington and thus started the, the, uh, a friendship between the two men uh, over over a brandy in, in a hotel in downtown Tucson, mm. um, and uh, as a, as a result, he was not only thought it was you know to train his soldiers, which one assumed to make sure you took care of your mounts, 
but he actually died as a result of that level of training because he felt that once the, that the regiment had transferred to various forts in, in Montana, such as ironically Fort Custer, which is always along the Little Bighorn River, the ill-fated place that Custer met his demise, not that far from the fort, mm. he was trying to convince people that, like the European Army, they had to be able to ford rivers and do all these difficult things with their mounts, and so they had been out on this training exercise on their horses and doing river fording and, and, and that sort of thing. And it was a hot day, and he, you know, stripped off down to probably his skitties and jumped in to cool off. And unfortunately, the old adage of look before you leap was not uh, being followed, and it appeared that he hit his head on, on, on the, the shallows or a rock and, uh, before anybody realized that he had been, you know, uh, knocked out and, and therefore not able to, to to raise himself up to the surface and swim, he had, he drowned. Mm. And so he was trying to, and he did in, indeed come home from Germany with a lot of thoughts on new kinds of training and new things that our military needed to do. And had he, he began to write some articles about the proper firearm and this sort of thing in some of the, the military journals of the time. So he, while he, professed not to be an intellectual, at least from his, his days at West Point. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in reality, he was becoming somewhat of an army theorist and somebody who had he lived and actually was, interestingly enough, senior to John J. Pershing, who was two years his junior at West Point. Mm -hmm. He might have been somebody important on the, uh, the staff of, of uh, Pershing or some of these other officers who was his contemporaries. And I did a study and looked at, thanks to a colleague of mine, had a journal that was actually kind of a scrapbook and was able to look at a lot of the officers who had served in his class of 1884. And had he, um, you know, lived, many of these guys became, you know, majors, colonels, and in some cases, general officers. He might have been counted amongst them and he might have influenced uh, things in, in the First World War, particularly because of his knowledge of the German military uh, tactics and, and strategies. But that's a what if, and we'll never know. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. He sounds like he was a really good soldier. Um, he was. He's the kind of guy that in the days of Hollywood, when they were turning out the old John Ford westerns and whatever, he would have made a great character in a movie, you know, yeah. a young, handsome fellow who who the ladies would swoon at and all the men knew he was a manly man and would take <laughs> care of them and such. And, yeah. and uh, the fact that he was, uh, you know, a friend of Frederick Remington, who Remington's career skyrocketed not long after dealing with Clark and doing some illustrations for some of the, the national journals in those days that, uh, you know, especially from the Civil War forward, people were used to Harper's and others that had illustrations roles before, you know, photography could, you know, be easily uh, cut and pasted into a newspaper. And so these, these illustrators, uh, you know, made their mark and, and Remington indeed uh, began to make money from, uh, from, from these illustrations and went on to be successful financially as well as, as a well uh, respected and known artist. Because Remington, prior to that, had burned through his father's inheritance within a very rapid period of time. No young man ever does that, though he was unique, you know. No one ever squanders dad and mom's <laughs> money. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, he had, not, had pretty much not wisely invested, and so his back was against the wall, and he had to do something, especially since he had a new bride who kind of expected 
maybe, you know, Freddie should, uh, you know, su- support the wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, because that was the custom of the time. And so uh, this art thing was a, a bit of serendipity by meeting this, this Sergeant Gibbons and, uh, um, and by uh, him starting to illustrate some of the exploits of not only Clark, but of Clark's fellow uh, lieutenant in the same troop K of Lieutenant Cavalry, a man by the name of John Bigelow. Mm-hmm. Which is a whole nother story that maybe we'll go into another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a, um, you have an assignment now once the National Archives opens back up. You have to go in and find Clark's report uh, for me about the, <laughs> about the Germans. Uh, it, you, know, yeah. you, you have to quit doing what you're doing now. You have a more important uh, goal in life. <laughs> there, uh, yeah, an important goal. True. Um, <laughs> so what did, did, uh, did you get anything? Did Remington have any um, response, or you know, with um, Clark's death, did you come across? Um, oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, they had. You know how it is. Sometimes you have a falling out with with uh, your best friend, and then you go back and have a beer, and you forget about it, type mm-hmm. of thing. Well, he and Clark had had a falling out in part because Clark was kind of lazy, and Remington kept saying, "I can get you some assignments on the side to write these articles." Not only for military journals, but to be paid by, you know, some of these, the equivalent of USAA or, or what have you at the time, uh, Dime Magazine, what have you. Mm-hmm. And he just, he just would blow them off. And so one thing led to another and they had a kind of a falling out for a while and came back. But he, uh, he's certain now, the, the beauty of it is, is that Remington's letters to Clark were preserved by Clark and, and his widow kept them. Uh, we don't have a lot of, of Clark's letters back to Remington, unfortunately, so we don't have both sides of the coin. But you can tell he he really admired uh, Clark and, and was the kind of guy that he would probably would have wanted to be rather than the rotund artist sitting in, in his, his fine Victorian home in in, uh, in New York. But having said that, the, the letter was very you know poignant from and, and Clark's. Uh, also, his charm rubbed off on Missy, who was uh, uh, Remington's wife. She just thought, I think she probably looked at him as, as a, a, a wasteful younger brother type of thing. Mm. <laughs> uh, but she adored him, too, and was very sweet and would write little marginal notes in Remington's letters, which are full of you know, doodles and wonderful pieces of, 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 of sketches and things that they were saying, I, I want to do this, tell me, you know. Uh, you know, tell me, Powie, if, uh, which Powie was his, the nickname his family used, what, uh, what, uh, you think about this and is this the correct pose or tactic or formation or whatever. Hmm. But he quickly <laughs> latched on to other officers after that, that evening. Remington latched on to some other officers who were never as close to him, but he used them as sounding boards and, and information. And, you know, Remington, when he started out, wasn't the successful person he became, and not both financially and otherwise. And so not unlike us when we were young guys going, hmm, let's see, i got to get across country. But who's an old frat buddy of mine or somebody from the Army I can stay at his house for free on his couch, you know, maybe get a couple of meals out of him? Mm-hmm. That's what Remington did the second time he came out to Arizona. He, he essentially stayed at, at Clark's bachelor officer's quarters so he didn't have to pay anything <laughs> anybody. <laughs> To, to do what became the uh, one of the articles that gained him fame, and that was the Scout with the Buffalo Soldiers. And indeed, mm-hmm. my uh, uh, book, Scouting uh, with the Buffalo Soldiers, is kind of a a, a pastiche or a, 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 a way of acknowledging the two men getting together, uh, kind of working 
uh, as a team, won, won the soldier, um, who was the, the model and then Remington, the artist who captured that both in, in paintings or in illustrations and in, and writing because Remington was a fairly decent writer and captured, you know, very succinctly what he saw in ways that would engage a popular audience who was for living vicariously through these, these articles about what was going on and on the frontier. So let me turn to, um, so we've talked a lot about the resources you used for your research. Um, is there anything else you use that you haven't mentioned any archives or, or any collections? Well, luckily I was able to get things both here in Arizona and the national archives in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. And uh, indeed at West Point, it was exceedingly kind to me. The only thing that really, really was upsetting to me because I could never pick it up is at the 11th hour, I found an unknown Remington painting of Clark's Striker, a watercolor. Mm. And I found it online with no source. And, you know, I tried and tried and tried because there's even a blank page. If you look on the book in the color section of the book, there's one white page with nothing on it there. Partially that's because I'm hoping someday that this, this painting will show up and I'll get a copy and permission to, to use it. And regrettably, the book is uh, dedicated to a couple of my my um, respected colleagues, one of whom arguably was the foremost uh, historian of, of uh, uh, Frederick Remington. And uh, regrettably, he passed away before I could get him this image and say, what, what do you think? Do you know where it is? Because it isn't in his major book which literally was virtually every time Remington wrote on a napkin, uh, <laughs> wow. it was in there. And so it, well, I, I can't find it. So that was the one little piece of, of research besides this research that I referred to, uh, in, in, uh, of his, you know, his German, his observations on the German military. But pretty much everything else was sufficiently there to tell you the truth. I almost had to cut the book in half in mm. terms of all the material I had, it was just way too long, and it would have been a, the ultimate cure for insomnia if my <laughs> if I hadn't listened to a very fine editor that convinced me that maybe I didn't have to, you know, tell everybody about how to cook the meal. Just give them a nice meal, and and don't worry about all the ingredients. And so um, mm. it was it was cut back, but but necessarily so. I'm very pleased to say, and so I've learned that lesson that I may be enamored with my topic, but my reader doesn't necessarily have the same passion for it. So when I do my Buffalo Soldiers, the men and their, their missions for the University of Nebraska Press, which is my next project yeah. publication wise, mm-hmm. uh, I, I will learn, I will learn from, from a, the a good counsel of, of my editor and a couple of my, my friends who, uh, I won't repeat what they said about the original manuscript, but because this is for a popular audience out there, mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> they were right in. I, I hopefully corrected it. So working with the University of North uh, Texas Press was a joy. It was not my first time to the altar. I had failed in a couple of cases to get this book published. I thought it was going to come up with somebody, but they've been fun to work with. And right now, Elizabeth uh, Whitby, who's our uh, head of marketing for the University of North Texas Press, mm-hmm. is doing a really good job of, of keeping in contact with people. And I might sell 10 or 12 copies if I'm lucky. You know, so there. <laughs> I think there'll be more than that. Um, yeah, well, I all I did a book signing in, at Fort Concho, Texas, about 
three weeks ago and mm-hmm. or two weeks ago and we actually sold a couple dozen books and I had a great time. I kept telling myself we would have sold more if it weren't for COVID. That's yeah. my story and I'm sticking to it. It's a good one. Can't argue with you. So so what part of the research was most enjoyable? And and you said it's a it's been many decades of work. But you know, strangely enough, the letters were wonderful. The ones that particularly as to say that I found in uh well I didn't find but I utilized it uh, at the uh Missouri History Museum there in St. Louis, and that was great to peer into somebody's life, almost like, you know, sneaking around and skulking and being an <laughs> undercover agent. That was fantastic. But I have to say, gathering the images from scattered places, including some museums and private collections of, of Remington's artwork versus some of the photographs that I found and regrettably bought. I'd have to sell 10,000 books probably to get the cost of the photos that I bought for the book back. <laughs> but um, those images just somehow, they I was able to dice, it was like a Rosetta Stone. After I had read the letters and looked at the material, I was able to determine what was going on in a lot of the photographs or in the paintings. And the, the time I set for two days with uh, Laura Foster, who's the executive director of the uh, Frederick Remington Art Museum in Ardensburg, in the fall, with all this material, these paintings and all these things, it's just like, wow, I, I, this is probably the most exciting time. It's fun to go to the National Archives. It's great to go to libraries like the Huntington, where I did work or what have you. But to actually sit in the vault and, and, and look at these things and stay in, in, in the Remington, you know, in, in the house at the Frederick Remington Museum at, this gorgeous old house with a, a, you know, with a tub that was so deep that I had put water wings on it when I took a bath <laughs> and that sort of thing. Uh, getting those images together, the chase was as, as fun as as as, as bringing the, the the quarry to bay, and that is the, finally getting the book published, which was I thought would never happen, but it did. And again, I'm grateful to our friends in Denton, Texas, for believing in the project, and hopefully I won't let them down. So I see it's 480 pages. How, how many uh, illustrations or pictures or what have you are in there? Jeez, uh, we've got about 60 of them in the book, which is not traditional for a biography. And certainly most academic type university presses do not do uh, illustrations in depth and normally unless they're doing a big art, you know, coffee table book or something. And so that was the other reason I was so happy with the publisher is that they they stepped out on a limb and they didn't do what a lot of times publishers will do sandwich them all in into two or three places in the book they actually mm-hmm. had published the image where if I'm talking about a certain person there's that the, the, the photograph of James Hughes his his uh, classmate from West Point or whatever uh, and so um, I was very, very pleased with that. And the fact that they put color in, because how can you do a, a book with Frederick Remington as one of the characters and not have Remington paintings have them in little postage sites, black and white, you know, uh, photocopies. And so mm-hmm. uh, nice, nice layout on the book. They did a good job. They made me almost look like I was a professional. <laughs> Maybe next time I'll live up to that. Um, but in, in the meantime, uh, I found it. Of all the dozens and dozens of books and scores of articles I've written, the one, the first time I'm almost satisfied with what I did. Not quite, but almost. <laughs> what, and you might have mentioned this before, but what was the most surprising thing you came across researching this book? 
Boy, I, I have to tell you, you put your finger on it, and I didn't really realize it, otherwise I would emphasize it. I, in passing, mentioned that he was kind of like an early, you know, or a forerunner of the a Delta Force. That mm-hmm. probably, I never thought about that. I always thought about these scout, you know, units going out uh, with Mickey Free and, and, uh, and others, and as I say, Al Sieber and all these people who had become, in their day, somewhat well-known to, to at least a certain part of the population who sub, subsequently become very obscure, if not completely unknown. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he had put this, this joint task force or strike force together was something I never really, you know, in my 50-plus years of, of following the military in the West and particularly here in the Southwest, I had never really you know, thought about or really come across in the same way. And so... That was probably the most surprising part of the research. I did know about the friendship between Clark because, as I mentioned over a half a century ago, talking to a man who actually, you know, knew both of these gentlemen, at least, you know, uh, in, in passing, if not in, in depth. And uh, so a lot of the stuff was, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Okay, you know, that's typical of what an Army officer was doing in garrison, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the uh, situation about uh, this strike force was really something, again, that was almost something Hollywood could have, you know, <laughs> done back in the 50s or 60s. But it was the real, it was the real thing. Mm-hmm. Was there, um, and you mentioned a few of the gaps uh, that you came across that uh, you couldn't find an answer. But what would you think is the, or what would you say is the question you would you would have most liked to find an answer to, and maybe didn't. Oh, I definitely going back to your 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 discussion of his days in Germany and his reports. I would mm. dearly love to have his reports. All right. But from a personal side, I would love to know what happened to his wife's letters. And one when they he was you know corresponding with her when he was in Germany and she was still back in the in the states in St. Louis area, mm. um, fresh out of <laughs> Catholic convent school. She tells him to destroy the letters, and he says at one time, "But I, I, I don't want to do it because, you know, I, I miss you, and I'm reading them. You know, you know. Well, you just, you know, sometimes you, you shouldn't probably tell people everything. <laughs> yeah, mm. you don't lie to them, but you don't have to tell them everything. So I'm sure she wasn't happy about that. And he, when he passed, they had they, they had a, a, an infant in arms when he died, and she had to come back from from you know. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, Montana, back to her family, who owned a luxurious mansion, you know, multiple-story, you know, brick bastion, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know what her letter said, but either she destroyed them after his death, or he finally complied, or possibly the third thing, and this is kind of the mystery story that, you know, that I would love to know the answer to and never will. A, the youngest sister, his his wife's youngest sister, lived to a fairly ripe old age in the early 1950s, took all of Clark's papers and donated them to the Missouri Historical Museum. And I'm wondering if she said, oh, I can't have my sister's letters be seen. I must destroy them, you know. So who knows? But I'd love love to be the fly on the wall and know what she, Elizabeth, uh, Clark's wife, was saying because he was, you know, not a, not uncommon to young guys. He was full of you know what when he was <laughs> trying to court her and everything, and and you know trying to convince her. Oh no, that other woman doesn't matter, and you know, well that other woman is my best friend. You clod. I, I know <laughs> what you're talking about. 
So it, it would have been it would have been a lot of fun to have those and talk about a great great script. You could have done a fun miniseries if you had both sides. <laughs> did they did they have any? Did they have a child? Yes. As a matter of fact, they they he came back. They they had this storybook wedding and uh, in in uh, with the band from the you know the military band from Jefferson Barracks and. Uh, a, a very prominent Catholic priest married them because they were both Catholic, and he was his mother was quite devout, so he couldn't have probably done anything but marry a Catholic girl. Mm-hmm. And went off on a honeymoon uh, in you know in uh, Canada and came back and got off the train in, in the middle of nowhere, Montana at that time, and reported for duty and tried to set up housekeeping, with, you know, which was pretty primitive in the Frontier Army, even though thank goodness the railroad made that a little bit better for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, not too long after they got settled in, you know, she became with child, as they used to say, and it, uh, the baby was born and baptized, and uh, another, Alton Clark, but his H uh, stood for, for uh, used, which was, um, again, his old friend Clark's old friend from West Point, who was his best man and then later became the godfather to their baby. But the baby was not even virtually a year old when, when Clark uh, died, when you know, mm-hmm. through the accident. So mom had to pack up the, the child and what worldly goods that they could bring back to. to and so she raised, she was a single mom for the rest of her life. But again, mm-hmm. thank goodness they were affluent enough that they never wanted for anything, at least financially. Mm-hmm. And the son went on to be a World War One fighter pilot. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, unlike his father, graduated very near the top of his class at, at uh, one of the universities in St. Louis, and then went on to get a law degree when he was still in his early 20s. Hmm. So, um, but regrettably, he died not of influenza, but something fairly similar to it during the great influenza epidemic, uh, or shortly thereafter. And so huh. the mom not only was a widow, just her death in the 20s, but uh, she uh, she was also, had lost her son, so it was... Her life, even though it should have been a, a, a very charmed one from a financial standpoint, it was a very sad one in many ways. And so, uh, mm. uh, as I say, her sister, her sister had not lived uh, till a later age. We might not know any of the story. All those letters could have been lost because the, the house was essentially fell into disrepair and mm. the neighborhood changed very much. And, and unfortunately, when I got to see the house about a year and a half ago, not long thereafter, it burned, which was uh, so I'm privileged. And I also visited their grave because she brought the body back eventually from from uh, Montana and put it in the family uh, plot there in in, uh, in mm. St. Louis. Mm. My next question, maybe you just answered it, was that was there anything you came across that had an emotional impact on you? Uh, you know, going to the grave really did because you here was the, the you know the husband and the wife. And their, their young sons with him, you know, the Medal of Honor uh, and cross sabers and everything on his headstone. And uh, it shows, you know, the fragility of life. You know, here's these young people just starting out. They, they were, you know, very romantic uh, in the Victorian sense, kind of like the, the knight errant and his lady. And, uh, and how fleeting life can be. Here, everything was starting out. They were studying life together. Uh, they had a, a new child, and, and uh, she was trying to adjust to military life, which was something he worried about, and, and mm-hmm. rightly so, because she was a privileged individual in many respects. 
And it was a difficult life even in the post-Indian War era because it wasn't being in downtown Washington, D.C. or in one of the posts in Boston or San Francisco where things were pretty uh, pretty cushy, as they used to say, a guilt-edged hmm. assignment. Um, and so um, this, this, it brought it home that, you know, you, even if you have it all, you can lose it all. And so uh, hmm. it, I felt I needed to tell his story particularly because uh, even though he wasn't famous, that was maybe why I was drawn to him. He wasn't famous. He was the common person. He was much more like us than than like some of the people who we hear about from the history of the military or the American West or whatever. He was just an ordinary kind of guy um, who who's somehow I was able to find enough information to at least think that I understand him a bit, but then again, I don't understand myself most days, so mm. why should I claim that I understand Lieutenant Clark? Mm. I feel like you have a cheat sheet because you're answering my questions right before I'm about to ask them. Um, <laughs> the, the next one, <laughs> and I'll ask it anyway. So apart from telling the story of Clark, um, wh what do you hope the book will do for readers? You know, this this is interesting. I think we're going to have a, a scope of readers, and of course, you know, you probably dealt with this yourself, and certainly with some of the people you interviewed. Presses today essentially say, "Yeah, that's fine. That's a neat book. So who's going to buy it? Mm -hmm. You, you got to tell them, you know, what what you <laughs> what you're going to do with this, because for some reason they want to sell books. I don't know why, but I guess they they do. Mm -hmm. And so basically, when I had to do uh, the the spreadsheet uh, to tell them." There's a, a mo there's about three different audiences. You have your one audience, which is your audience that are interested in Western military themes. Mm -hmm. Your second audience, which is kind of a crossover, but still, uh, still, uh, you know, a subset, if you will. People interested in the African American or, or black military experience, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's on the frontier or it's in Vietnam or World War Two. So, and some of these people are descendants of the the Buffalo Soldiers or or people who belong to, to organizations honoring the Buffalo Soldiers. Hmm. And, of course, the third group is is a more obvious one, and perhaps in the long run, the, one of the bigger audiences internationally as well as nationally here, and that would be people interested in Frederick Remington, because this is a slightly different, more personal look at Remington than than the normal biography. Well, there's no such thing as normal, but your standard biographies, which are great and sweeping, and there's some wonderful things that have been written. But this is focusing down to, it's a buddy movie. You know, there's these two young guys just starting out in their life trying to make their mark, and what really rockets to the top of his uh, profession. And he, too, you know, Remington dies in 1909, so he's a young man still. So he, you know, he pre, you know, Clark may predecease him, but not by that all that much in, in the greater scheme of things. So those are the three audiences that I think are interested. And then I also am pleased to say that because I've been working with the National Park Service uh, on a study of the Buffalo Soldiers in the National Parks, and I've been to not only national parks but state and city. Uh, and even a privately run organization that has to do with forts and sites. There are about almost a hundred museums or historic sites that have some aspect of this history um, in as part of their interpretation or presentations. Mm -hmm. And so, even if they only buy one or two, that's that's a couple of books sold, you know. And mm -hmm. hopefully, they'll they'll uh, 
find their way to the public through their museum stores or their historic site stores or what have you. And so those, those I think, are the ways of the market. But going back to your question there, I think there are three different audiences. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they're separate. Uh, the uh, sales will prove that I'm wrong, probably, but that's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> so you mentioned, sorry, you uh, your your current writing project. What what's that about again? I think you mentioned it, but right, it's the Buffalo Soldiers, the Men and Their Mission. Right, and it's essentially the focus is not on the clerks of the world, but the Sergeant Gibbons, the guys who who you know were the the soldiers in the field, the professionals. What brought them to you know, what brought them to the military, what did they do, uh, what were the challenges racially that they faced, some of the things about life in the garrison. So it's going to be more, as you say, somewhat of a military history, but as much as social history. Uh, and I've been blessed because I, I'm i not a great writer, but boy, can I find images, and I've been finding some wonderful images that I think will help carry the storyline uh, because the, the power of a photograph is still, you know, even in the digital age, uh, is, it speaks volumes if you if you know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I find after being much of my career in museums, you don't have to tell people a lot of information. People get things and see things that you don't see, mm-hmm. uh, even though you think you're an expert or something on it. And so mm-hmm. giving them the visuals also gives them the opportunity to use their own creativity, their own life experiences to read into to these things. So mm-hmm. I'm, I have to start on it soon. I'm, right now I'm on a oral history project for African-American World War II and Korean War veterans, but as soon as we get through with that, uh, I'm locking myself away and, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm using the excuse of the way we should distance and such, but I'm doing it because I'm really looking forward to the next book and I don't always say that when I'm writing. Hmm. So where can people find you on the on the web? Do you have social media or website? I do not. However, uh, in order to contact uh, on this book, they're certainly welcome to get a hold of the University of North Texas Press. Mm-hmm. And certainly they have a great website. And uh, their marketing person who's a pure joy to work with, who you, you contacted, is mm-hmm. Elizabeth.Whitby, W-H-I-T-B-Y. Mm-hmm. At umt.edu, so that's Elizabeth dot with uh, at umt.edu, and that's the best way to get in touch. You can also Google me, but that's not too efficient, and sometimes yeah. it brings up stuff, and sometimes it brings up a distant relation of mine who's a professor up in Maine. But you know, it's, yeah. it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any um, final thoughts or words? No, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm hoping that you're safe out there and that yeah, uh, Washington, D.C. will someday soon be a place that I can come back and dock in the doorsteps because I have some work to do at the National Archives. Uh, and I know of a, I know of a pub or two near the archives, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to come have a drink, but, you know, I might, <laughs> yeah. I might twist your arm. Are you talking about the archives within D.C. or over at, uh, what, College Park area? Both, both. College Park uh, is mostly for um, imagery, you know, photographs and things. And then Archives One is where, you know, like Clark's, which I already have, but is an example, his official military uh, uh, efficiency reports and that sort of thing are are in the National Archives. So you have to 
go to both, but because the shuttle bus is so handy, it's it's a, it's the greatest thing. And in the old days, without that shuttle bus, you you'd have to rent a car because Maryland seems to be far away. <laughs> but, mm. but it isn't if you're taking the shuttle bus. And uh, so I'm hoping to get back there. I'm going to try one last time with my colleague to find see if we can't find uh, Clark's. Uh, reports, and then I have a book mm. off in the distant future, which is my third and last book on the American Army uniform, in this case from 1888 to 1916, and there's still a couple of, of things on uh, that are unknowns that I'd like to try and resolve before I start on that book, but that's down the pike somewhere. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much for speaking with me. This was uh, really interesting and fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.